Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome to the latest edition of Kelly Dry's podcast series. I'm Steve Augustino, a partner in the communications practice at Kelly Dry. I'm joined today by Senior Associate Brad Courier. Brad joined us from the FCC Enforcement Bureau after spending several years as a legal advisor in the Bureau. Today, we return to a series that we regularly recorded during the previous administration, a review of FCC enforcement activities. This is our first podcast on enforcement since Commissioner Pai became chairman of the FCC in January. When he was a commissioner, Pai was a frequent critic of the FCC's enforcement practice. Now that Chairman Pai has led the FCC for six months, his approach to enforcement is coming into better focus. In this podcast, Brad and I will discuss what we know and what we still have to learn about Pai, the enforcer. So where I'll start with is a discussion of the major focus areas for Pai. Um, During his time as commissioner, he dissented frequently from enforcement actions, and we know from those dissents that he had a number of issues with the investigations and the interpretations, both substantively and procedurally, the way the Enforcement Bureau was addressing uh, enforcement. Since he took office, however, there was initially kind of a, a quiet period um, at, in enforcement, except for some pirate radio activities and low-power television enforcement actions, there really wasn't a lot of major activity in the first couple of months. Um, I think this was primarily Pi trying to set forth his own staff on there. It took a while for him to appoint a new Enforcement Bureau chief. Um, He did that uh, just within the last couple of weeks, appointed Rosemary Harold, who is an industry veteran. She has been uh, in private practice. She's been at the FCC in a variety of different uh, uh, capacities. Um, She's very knowledgeable about the FCC and about enforcement activities. Um, she's a very different personality, however, from Travis LeBlanc, the previous Enforcement Bureau chief. And to me, that seems that that may be intentional as a way to kind of refocus what the Enforcement Bureau was doing. Um, but following that, that um, quiet period, we've started to see a few things that uh, Pi is focused on. And that's where I want to I go to this. We saw first uh, kind of an immediate rollback of some activities from the previous administration um, very publicly and very quickly, right after uh, Pi assumed chairmanship, he terminated the sponsored data or zero rating investigations that had been going on, and he they affirmatively withdrew the previous statements about how those activities would go and what the Bureau thought of, of the issues related to those activities. So we saw that, but then we didn't really see very much. Um, what I want to talk about now that things are starting to come into focus is we're seeing Pi, um, the areas he cares about a lot. And we're going to talk a little bit about TCPA enforcement, robocalls, um, some spoofing issues. We're going to talk a little bit about some non-monetary enforcement tools and the approaches there. We're going to talk about Lifeline and a couple of different things that um, we're starting to see the chairman cares about here. Um, 
First, I think let's move to TCPA. And Brad, why don't you talk to us a little bit about some of the major activities we've seen in the last six months? Thanks, Steve. I think a good place to start will be the Abramovich Notice of Apparent Liability and Citation that was issued in June that deals with spoof robocalls. The NAL actually proposes a forfeit of $120 million, which is actually the largest proposed penalty in FCC history. What this dealt with was over 100 million spoof robocalls over three months. And what spoofing is is falsifying caller ID information in order to try to get the person on the other end to pick up. So you had the millions of robocalls over three months, a million calls a day. Sometimes people were being called several times a week. So spoofed, what the company did was they spoofed local numbers to induce people to pick up the phone. Now, important to you know, uh, get across here is that the numbers were randomly assigned. So what that means is not only were the numbers not connected to the person on the other end, but they were basically designed to try to have the person, the, the called party, pick up. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a little more than that. It's interesting. It's important to make this distinction. Um, spoofing is um, possible in a number of contexts, and it is legitimate in um, a number of areas and a number of purposes. Specifically here, what they were focusing on was that the spoofing was done to make this appear as if it was another subscriber in the local area. So it was deceptively identifying who was the originator of the call. That's absolutely right. And the commission actually made a point of emphasizing that, you know, not only talking about the legitimate uses of spoofing, like sometimes doctors will use spoofing when calling patients without giving away their personal number. But what we had here was if someone got one of these spoof calls and then tried to call the number back, they're just as likely to reach their neighbor down the street or their local school or someone else, not the actual company that called them. So what, not only did they spoof the numbers, but the company pretended to be calling to be offering vacation packages from popular travel or hospitality companies like TripAdvisor and Marriott. But instead, what would happen is if you actually responded to the call, you'd be directed to a Mexican call center that'd be offering you timeshares that were not affiliated with either of the companies that they were talking about. So the commission started to receive complaints from TripAdvisor and some of these other companies saying that there's someone out there who's spoofing our number that's pretending to be calling on our behalf and is offering these packages that have nothing to do with us. More importantly, because of the sheer number of all the robocalls, it ended up overwhelming what's known as a medical paging network, which is used to actually beep doctors for emergency situations out in Virginia. So in face of all the robocalling campaign, the commission looked at this under basically three different potential violations. First is the Truth in Caller ID Act, where it's illegal to spoof a telephone numbers in order to defraud, cause harm, or obtain anything of value. Another one, which Steve already mentioned, is the TCPA, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, where it's illegal to make auto-dialed or pre-recorded telemarketing calls to emergency lines like the medical paging surface or wireless phones and residential landlines under most circumstances without the called party's consent or an emergency purpose. Last thing was also the, the federal wire fraud statute, which actually makes it illegal to use interstate communications to perpetrate fraud. Yeah. And we're, we're really talking about two separate actions the FCC took to address those three different um, legal requirements, correct? Yeah, that's right. In the notice of apparent liability, the actual forfeiture proposed here only focuses on the first thing I was talking about, the Truth and Caller ID Act. And what they found was that because of the spoof numbers, it caused harm to consumers, not just those who received the calls and bought into these timeshares, but also the numbers that got spoofed. So again, you know, if people were calling their neighbors down the street to complain about receiving robocalls from them, when in fact they weren't the ones who were making the calls. There was harm to the misrepresented companies and also harm to the paging service that I mentioned before. 
So what you see is under the Truth and Caller ID Act, there's a special exception from the Communications Act. And the Communications Act usually requires a party to receive a citation, if it's a non-regulatee, before the commission can actually propose a fine against it. But the Truth and Caller ID Act actually contains a special exception for that, where you're able to actually impose forfeitures in the first instance without having to issue a warning. So actually, the NAL only deals with the Truth and Caller ID Act portion of this, because for violations of the Telephone Consumer Protection Act or this wire fraud statute, they do need to send out this warning under the Communications Act. So that's what the citation's about. Right, right. Okay. So, so the citation says, you're warned, you have to do this, you have these obligations. If you do it again, you can be fined. Not right? only can you be fined, but also here's the dollar amount. So they mentioned that TCPA can be almost $20,000 per violation. Under the wire fraud, it can be up to $5,000. Right, right. But with the NAL, because of the Truth and Caller ID Act, they're able to go directly and sort of skip that step and go directly to a proposed fine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Right, right. Okay. And, and that's consistent with mean, what we heard from Pi in his discussion about the TCPA and robocalls more broadly was that these things are a scourge. They are unwanted. He wanted to do something about it. Um, he had, on the policy matter, many, many times uh, dissented and objected, saying, well, there are legitimate uses of, of outbound calling and legitimate uh, types of communications. Clearly, this was not the type of communication that he felt was legitimate, and he seems to have come down very, very hard in order to try to penalize and stop this. Sure, but it's important to note that this actually isn't the first ever action against a company for doing spoofing. I mean, the Enforcement Bureau released an item actually last year uh, which imposed uh, forfeitures on delegated authority related to people using spoofing capabilities to harass actually an ex-spouse. So the, the real focus here is not that they're breaking any new legal ground, but really that they're doing this at the full commission level and the amount that, as you just said, to really get the point across of how serious that the new the new chairman's going to take care of. Yeah, yeah. If you're operating illegally, if you're if you're a bad guy, so to say, air quotes there, right? Um, the message I take from this is the FCC is going to come down and come down hard. Now, I want to move to the other major action, which is a little bit different. It's talking not necessarily about the originator of a call, but but another party that's in the chain of originating those calls. Sure. So let's move on to the dialing services forfeiture order, which is actually a pretty good example of what happens after one of these companies receives a citation and then there's further robocalls. So this is a follow-up from a 2014 proposed forfeiture. And the uh, forfeiture amount is about $2.8 million uh, dealing with robocalls. And right off the bat, the important distinction to make here is that dialing services did not make the robocalls themselves. What they do is they offer a software-based robocalling platform and actually, the third parties that they work with, they create the pre-recorded messages, they upload the numbers to be called, and they direct when the calls need to be sent out. Right. So, so they're a broadcaster. Like, like in the fax context, we have fax broadcasters. This is a, a robocall broadcaster, if you will. Right. And specifically here, there are wireless robocalls that are being made here. And they received a citation for enabling millions of robocalls without consent. And then, because in the citation's a warning, there is no monetary forfeiture associated with it, but it comes with this, um, you know, this warning that if you do any further robocalls, they'll be able to impose forfeiture. So there was about 184 additional robocalls that they found after they received the warning, and so this resulted in the enforcement action. But, but why is dialing services liable for those? That's well, that, the key here. And that is the, the actual question. And they brought up the same issue that you did, which is, you know, we have these, you know, this, this, this standard for junk fax broadcasters. 
you know, where they're only liable for high degree of involvement or if they actually notice that their platform is being used illegally and their failure to take action. Now, Downlink Services raised this issue in response to receiving the NAL, and the commission said that the, this, that standard for junk fax broadcasters doesn't apply to robocalls. And instead, they announced this new sort of test for third-party liability for, platformers, uh, for platforms that offer the ability to make robocalls. This idea that the platform could be so involved in the placement of the call that it essentially made the call. And this idea of being so involved is, is fairly broad. So with dialing services, they, the, the FC alleged that they assisted in the creation of robocall scripts that their platform actually enabled spoofing, and that they basically they should have known that these parties that they were working with were using the robocalls to send illegal robocalls. Right, yeah, and, and I want to point out uh, at this point, I mean, we we don't have the actual text of the order yet. Um, we have the the presentation at the meeting and the statements. Um, the So I have limited information about exactly how this standard applies, um, but it is significant in that it is a. It seems to be a much looser standard than the high degree of involvement standard, and it seems to be rather vague, at least in this first iteration of it. So, this is something I think people need to pay attention to very, very carefully to see what it actually says, and then to figure out how to apply it in other contexts. Right. I mean, at the time that we record, it's been about a week since the announcement of the item, and we still don't have the text. And part of the reason for that is probably because Commissioner O'Reilly issued a pretty strong dissent to the item. And, you know, the main focus right off the bat was that, you know, we're dealing with a platformer here. We should be going after the robocall originators, not the platform providers. And you know, Commissioner Riley criticized a number of aspects of the item, but specifically focused on sort of, you know, said that you're establishing sort of this three-pronged test, that you can go after a robocall platform when it offers spoofing, is involved in the creation of the call's content, or markets that it can reach a wide audience. But then he criticized each, you know, point of that uh, standard. You know, right off the bat, one thing that he mentioned was there was no evidence here, and again, we don't have the text of the item to see if there's anything in there. But, you know, nothing we've seen so far is that there's any evidence of spoofing actually done by dialing services, at least for any of the robocalls that are at issue in the action. Not only that, as we've already mentioned, spoofing can be used for legitimate services. Second, in the response to the notice of apparent liability, dialing services actually objected to the characterization that it helped with creating the scripts for the robocalls. Actually said it didn't do anything to help prepare the scripts. Instead, it only checked them for legal and regulatory compliance. You know, finally, uh, Commissioner O'Reilly also noted that the company drastically reduced the amount of robocalls that are being made on its platform after it received the citation and basically asked, what's the point of this enforcement action? Is it to try to get compliance or is it to try to, you know, push out forfeitures? Yeah. And so Commissioner O'Reilly was really worried about sort of the precedent that's being set here where we have third-party liability for these platformers when they're not the actual ones directing the calls. Right, right. And, and there's some interesting aspects of this that I want to get into a little bit later about O'Reilly. I mean, this was this was adopted two to one, but O'Reilly was the dissenter here. So, um, you know, he disagreed with Pi, whereas previously, you know, Pi and O'Reilly both objected to the same enforcement activity generally. Um, maybe for slightly different reasons, and we'll get into that on this. But um, so I guess there's there's more to come on dialing services, and we'll see. The one other thing I want to touch on, um, just shifting gears a little bit here, is that um, another policy area, in addition to robocalls, 
that Pi has staked out early has been Lifeline and administration of the USF programs in general. Um, with respect to Lifeline, there haven't been any enforcement activities yet. Uh, but the thing I want to talk about here is that um, there was, about two weeks or so ago, a, a uh, report from the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, on the oversight of the Lifeline program. And it, they had been doing this report and this study since 2014. So a lot of the information and data in there is, is old and it precedes some other policy changes the FCC had made. But um, a week after that, on July 11th, Chairman Pai issued a letter to USAC, the administrator of the program, um, instructing it to take a number of specific activities dealing with the substantive areas there, the types of issues, you know, the ineligible subscribers, the so-called phantom subscribers, et cetera. And the policy direction he has there, that's beyond what the topic of this enforcement activity. But what I find very, very interesting uh, about this is that the letter directs USAC for each of these activities to take action um, to recoup any ineligible payments, any uh, unsupported payments. So first of all, there will be enforcement to recollect on a number of these topics um, on this. And secondly, it directs USAC to refer alleged violations and to refer them both to the FCC Office of Inspector General and to the FCC Enforcement Bureau. And Brad, maybe you can talk just a little bit about the difference in the roles of those two, FCC OIG versus Enforcement Bureau. Sure. So the Office of the Inspector General is really focused on sort of the integrity of the program. So they're looking at making civil actions to recoup the money that uh, has been given to ineligible or phantom subscribers that we talked about and also to ensure that the disbursements that go out are being made for legitimate subscribers as well. Now, the Enforcement Bureau, meanwhile, their tools are administrative, basically, penalties for violations of the rules. So the Office of Inspector General is worried about the money, where is it going, making sure it's going to the right people, and making sure they can get it back when it doesn't. The Enforcement Bureau is actually imposing fines for violations of actual action, making sure you're following the policies, rules, and everything else that's designed to ensure the integrity of the program. So one's basically penalties, one's more about the money. Right, right. Well, in addition, though, the important thing with OIG is that they coordinate with the Department of Justice um, so they can proceed on a criminal or a civil matter against not just the companies that were um, submitting the request, but potentially individuals that are involved in this or other persons who might be committing fraud, if you will, in, in relation to this. Yeah, and it's interesting that you actually bring up individual liability too because one of the specific things that came out of this letter from Chairman Pai to USAC was this idea, again, coming out of the GAO report, but a focus on the actual agents of uh, lifeline providers and whether or not there needs to be additional safeguards to be able to track individual agents which is seen as sort of a driver of potentially manipulated data related to subscribers. So there's this idea that agents are going to have to basically register, that their transactions with USAC are going to be able to be tracked over time. Now, whether this is going to be used more in the OIG context, again, for the civil and criminal, or also in this administrative context for the Enforcement Bureau, that still remains to be right. seen. Now, the USAC's not required to give a response to this letter until August 8th, so we're going to see what they come back with, and then that's going to really set the stage for probably future actions going to be over the fall and the rest of the year. Okay. I got one last thing, specific action I want to talk about before we talk just a little bit generally about what um, we're seeing and, and what the dynamics are going to be on enforcement. 
And that is, Brad, we saw something that neither you or I have ever seen in our enforcement practice, an amended NAL. What is an amended NAL? Sure. An amended NAL, which is something I certainly have never heard of. Uh, The Communications Act certainly doesn't speak of a tool called an amended notice of apparent liability. But that's what we saw. In June, the commission ends up issuing something known as an amended notice of apparent liability in order against network solution systems. And this involved rural health care program under the Universal Services Fund. And the actual details, sort of the violation, aren't particularly important, but just a little bit of background. Basically, there's a follow-up from a notice of apparent liability that happened in November of 2016, proposed $21 million in penalties, $3.5 million in recovery for the fund. And what happened there is that the company had violated rural health care competitive bidding rules and allegedly committed wire fraud by basically providing falsified information to the commission. Right. So, so this is one of the last actions by the Wheeler slash FCC under Travis LeBlanc, right? Right. And also one of the first ever actions being taken in this area, period. So what you saw was, you know, the company potentially inflating the cost of service to receive improper reimbursement. But the key thing is, is focusing on the violations and the amount of the proposed forfeiture. So the original NAL based the penalties on basically these forms that were submitted by rural healthcare providers to USAC that contained information from the company. Now, in response to those forms, that's what they based the violations on, that's what they based the proposed forfeiture on. But then Commissioner, now Chairman Pai, issued a dissent at the time and said, this is actually the, the wrong basis for basically assessing these violations. These violations should depend on the forms that actually the company itself submitted to USAC, which are signed and certified on behalf of the company that they contain the correct information. And he also dissented in, in an area that's pretty common, was common for Pi at the time, was that many of these were beyond the statute of limitations. They had been submitted more than one year from the date of the uh, NAL, et cetera. Right, exactly. So the amended NAL that comes on out, it leaves the wire fraud uh, and you know recovery to the fund in place. But what it does is it removes those old violations, those ones that are beyond the one-year statute of limitations, and now changes the basis for the forfeitures from the forms that were submitted by the healthcare providers to the forms that were actually submitted by the company. Now, what's interesting about that is that there's actually more violations now under Chairman Pai's recalculation and actually increase the proposed forfeiture by over $855,000. Now, this is not only the first time that we've ever seen the commission amend an NAL to increase the proposed forfeiture. It sort of takes us away from the usual process that we've seen this in the past where the commission will issue a notice of apparent liability. They will receive a response. And then based on that response, they sometimes will lower the forfeiture. We've certainly never seen them issue an amended NAL that not only changes the basis of what the violations were found, but also increases the proposed amount that the company faces to pay. Right. I mean, I've seen instances where based upon the response, they found new violations or additional violations, and that was the subject of a separate NAL that was then resolved. But yeah, I've never seen an amended NAL, and it's kind of an odd duck then, at least, in terms of like basic questions like... Is this within the statute of limitations? Um, What's the response going to be? How can they respond to it? So um, there's some interesting questions there. Well, again, you know, uh, part of the criticism that then Commissioner Pai had was that there were SOL issues with the original NAL. But by doing this amended NAL process, we may be creating new statute of limitations problems. And specifically, by not only changing the base of the forfeiture, but also increasing it, the question becomes, Okay, does that restart the statute of limitations clock? If so, 
a lot of the violations that this NAL deals with have taken place more than a year before the release of the amended NAL, meaning that if the NAL was released today for the first time, many of these violations would be time barred. No one seems to disagree about that. But the commission implies in this amended NAL that no, it doesn't restart the clock. Instead, what we have here is essentially some text is taken out of the original NAL and this new text is inserted in and the same statute of limitations should apply. Right, right. And I'll point out that while the company, in, in theory at least, has the opportunity to respond, I, I fear that these really are going to be issues that you and I just get to debate and we never really find out because to some degree this is an empty document in that we know and the commission knew at the time that the target network solution systems had already declared bankruptcy. So. It's unlikely, I think, that they're going to respond at all to this. Right, and the commission was pretty straightforward with that too, understanding that because the bankruptcy protections that are at issue here, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to force the company to end up paying a fine. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's shift gears here, there, and um, and try to wrap up with looking at the broader um, what we're learning about the dynamics and enforcement. So the broader approaches that Pi has, and um, you know what he's going to have to deal with in this. And the first thing I'll start with is that um, we have seen, as we were talking about this, you know, statute of limitations, et cetera, there were a lot of specific criticisms that Pi had for that. Um, and, you know, he has been adamant to say that the commission and the Enforcement Bureau is going to follow those rules and is going to, um, you know, make sure that they are conducting their investigations quickly. Um, we'll see whether or not that plays out, but that's at least been what he has said. We're going to do this quickly. We're going to do this faster than uh, it had been done before. Well, it's important to note that, it, you know, with, don't know for sure with all of these, but at least a lot of them from reading the text of these enforcement actions, that these appear to be holdovers from the prior administration, that we're still in the process of cleaning up existing cases that existed under the, you know, former Enforcement Bureau and its former leadership. Right, right. And another thing I see, which I'm really going to save primarily, I think, for future uh, podcasts is that Pi has discussed using other uh, enforcement powers, non-monetary penalties that the Enforcement Bureau can uh, impose here, things like revoking authority and um, uh, withholding payments and things like that. And and they've those are kind of set up in a couple of things already, but we haven't seen actions on it yet. So well, we that's the talk. key thing is that we've seen a lot of items that go through that actually mirror the way enforcement actions have gone on for years and years and years. But they would contain sort of this final paragraph that would say, in addition to all of these violations that we found and in addition to these proposed forfeitures or imposed forfeitures you have to pay, we also need you to respond by, say, it's usually 60 days or 30 days, basically showing cause why the commission shouldn't revoke your authority to operate. And that, by the way, in, 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 and that's all authority. That's not just your authority to participate in, say, the Lifeline program. It means you're literally your authority to operate. Now, normally that comes with a lot of procedural safeguards, such as hearings and other things that would need to happen. And that's maybe part of the reason why we haven't seen any action yet to go forward with actually revoking anyone's authority. Right, right, right. And then the last point, the real interesting thing here, I guess, is Chairman Pai has a, has a new party kind of looking over his shoulder on these enforcement activities. Isn't that right? That's right. I mean, Commissioner O'Reilly, we've talked about it already, but even within, you know, someone seen as an ally, uh, certainly some were under the previous administration, they would dissent together and often on the same bases. What we're seeing now is uh, Commissioner O'Reilly becoming, you know, really no other way to describe it, sort of a procedural stickler, 
someone who's going to hold the commission to account to make sure that they're really um, hewing closely to the regulations and the law that are at issue in these enforcement items. So we saw during the prior administration, often Commissioner O'Reilly would dissent from an item but wouldn't be providing necessarily a statement. Um, and, you know, there's been sort of sometimes a little bit of confusion about necessarily what the dissent was about. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's been hard to tell. But he has, I mean, I've inquired a couple of times when he did that and talked to his staff and the s- staff responded back to me and said, well, the commissioner has made his position clear in other statements elsewhere and didn't feel like a statement is is necessary here. And that's fine because we see a couple of different things. We, we certainly know the, um, uh, the issue about statute of limitations. I think they both share on that. Um, but O'Reilly in particular is concerned about taking enforcement without clear rules. Right. We've seen that. I mean, a big thing here is that, you know, he's been a critic of using broad statutory power on the Communications Act. Say there's a broad consumer protection statute under 201. And he has no problem with the, you know, enforcing rules in regarding consumer protection. What he has a problem with is when he can't necessarily tie that to a specific regulation that he can find in the code. So we saw that sort of time and time again under the prior administration. One of the other things that he's also very concerned about is importing liability from, say, the original bad actor to the party that actually enables the violation. And we saw that sort of in dialing services where he says you should be going after the actual robocallers, the ones who actually want to send out the messages, not the platform that enables it. What he wants to see is basically clear intent. And he made this clear in one of his dissents, uh, actually in dialing services, where he wants to see these platforms, these third parties have clear intent to violate the rules if we're going to extend liability to them. What's interesting is that it makes an interesting sort of potential disconnect with O'Reilly's statements regarding pirate radio operators and pirate broadcasters because there he's made statements, again, in the dialing services dissents, a good example of that, where he actually wants to extend liability to third parties such as landlords or building owners that know that there are pirate broadcasters operating on their properties. Okay. Yeah, and then the last thing I'll just note on this, we've seen this in in a couple of, of, of other orders now. O'Reilly has also consistently said, look, these processes have to have meaning. The statute requires the commission to look at certain things like inability to pay. And and he has felt that past actions were um, not sincerely reviewing those types of issues. And I we've seen him pushing on that. And so I think that's another area to watch is how um, how much the commission you know, takes to heart each and every one of those requirements for imposing forfeitures and whether we see changes in the procedures there. So, yeah, I mean, there's this idea of procedural fairness that you receive these notice of apparent liability, they give you an opportunity to respond. So the commission should really review that response and, you know, review the facts that are raised, reviews the arguments that are raised. And I think Commissioner O'Reilly's concern has been and continues to be that the commission receives these responses but still just presses on with the facts that they found them in the initial NAL. Okay, super. Well, well, listen, I, I want to thank everybody for listening to this. I know this podcast was a little longer than our normal one, but we had a lot to talk about in terms of what we're learning uh, from Chairman Pai's approach to enforcement and what we can expect going forward. I would encourage you to continue to follow Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcasts um, we will pick up again with enforcement as a regular topic. Now I think that you know the wheels are turning and they're back on track, as uh, Chairman Pai had said recently. And so I uh, want to thank everybody for joining us, and we encourage you to check back later for our future podcasts on enforcement. Thank you. 
The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.